welcome back to Unraveling Science, the podcast where I speak to leading scientific researchers and listen to the stories that shape the science, but also the scientist. From immunology to astronomy, cancer biology to bioengineering, and much more. So, if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season, I'm so delighted to be sponsored by a wonderful Irish company called Biosciences Limited, who are the main Thermal Fisher distributors in Ireland. And I'm so grateful to them for coming on board and sponsoring this podcast. So Professor Emma Teeling is my guest on the podcast today. So Emma is a zoologist and geneticist and is currently the head of zoology at UCD and deputy director of UCD's Earth Institute. So Emma's work focuses on understanding the bat genome and how insights into bats may contribute to the management of ageing in humans. And as founder of the Bat Lab Centre, co-founder of the Bat 1K project and an elected member into the Royal Irish Academy, I'm so delighted that you actually have found the time to chat to me today, Emma. So thanks again for coming on Unraveling Science. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's it's an (laughs) honour. Um, well, I suppose, yeah, I really want to firstly get a sense of kind of what you were like when you were younger and were you always interested in animals in the outdoor world and zoology um, from the start? It's a good question. <laughs> you should ask my parents what I was like when I was younger. Um, so I grew up in a family where to be successful, you had to be successful in business. And so I had a very entrepreneurial father who set up multiple different companies. So they set up a Cooley Distillery, was involved in Glen Abbey, was involved in lots of different types of companies. And he was a had been a lecturer in UCD, the School of Business. And again, to be successful, you went to secondary school, you always had to go to college, this is what you had to do. But typically it was business, that's where, where you, you should be. And the thing was, I, I was always interested in the natural world. And so even though I wasn't quite introduced to it by my own family, because you know, we, we didn't necessarily go a nature walk, they always told me you could be whatever you want to be if you worked hard enough. And I remember going on a, I was on a girl guide trip and I had wanted to go and learn how to make a basket. But they said, no, you're going to go off on a nature walk. And I was like, what? So I did. And I thought, oh, my God, this stuff is absolutely fascinating. It was learning about ferns. I thought, God, this, this, this really was fascinating. And I remember then being taken by you know, my family to hear about Haley's Comet up in Dunsink Observatory for the first time. And again, it was just really fascinating. And I found looking at animals or trying to understand the why of things, just it intrigued me. And it always did. And I can remember when I, it's in secondary school, being introduced to science, being fascinated by biology. And I suppose for me, it was a question of, I always was interested in, in, in trying to find the answer. I was terrified to pick science for college as one of my first choices because I thought, well, can you really have a profession as a scientist? Shouldn't I be a medic or a vet or a business person? So in the end, the leaving cert decided it for me. So I didn't have enough points to do medicine in, in Dublin. I could have gone to go. I was told that no one was going to pay for fees if you went there. And I ended up enrolling in first science in UCD. But the field of science I was always interested in was zoology. I was fascinated by animals, fascinated by how diverse they were, how unusual they were. 
And really, I suppose the thing that stuck with me from my family was that if you work hard enough, you can be anything you want to be. They're still very surprised that I went into science rather than into business. But I guess it was, uh, no, it was lucky that I went on that nature walk. Yeah, definitely. And actually, just um, before I go into the science, so your kind of family business is in, in whiskey. And um, so I'm actually yes. from uh, a town in Westmeath called Kilbegan. So we have uh-huh, yeah. there. So I actually made that link over the weekend. I was like, that's it's a small world, you know. Yes. And I think your brothers are now involved in the tealing, tealing yeah. whiskey. Yeah. So uh, my two younger brothers heeded my family's advice and went into business. And they set up the tealing whiskey distillery in the Liberties. As it's following tradition for our family since, I suppose, is it 217 years ago, Arthur Teeling set it up? I'm sure I have that wrong. It'll be very cross. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm the black sheep. I'm a scientist. <laughs> and sometimes when I'm, you know, you know how it is doing science yourself at three o'clock in the morning when you're still trying to analyze that data or when your grants are rejected or your papers are rejected or something you've been doing for one and a half years, your hunch was wrong. You have to ask yourself, maybe I should have gone into business. Maybe I should have gone into the whiskey business. But yes, the, the one thing I suppose we all do is we all work very, very hard in our family. And it's something that you keep doing. And and there is an entrepreneurial spirit in science. You have to, here's a problem. How can I address it? How can I get the funding to be able to have the team to be able to answer that question? And you have to keep on going and going. And again, the other idea is that the thing that I suppose I take from our family is that no matter how many times you fail, you got to pick yourself back up again and keep going because it's not easy. Running your own business is not easy. Running your own uh, scientific questions is not easy. And so you just have to keep going. I suppose just be pigheaded. <laughs> but like if you think about it, running a lab is kind of like a business at the same time as well because you're you know managing yeah. people and projects and money. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I mean, I suppose I, I've raised 5.2 million euros from writing grants myself and have had typically 10 people work in my lab for the past 15 years that are all they have a salary mm. and they go off to be brilliant scientists doing their own research. So, yeah, it is like running your own business, but maybe even a bit more risky. <laughs> but I'm but I'm lucky that my salary is paid for by UCD because I'm also a professor here in UCD. So and I teach. Yeah, well, I suppose it's just to things. kind of rein back a little bit. So zoology in UCD is where you ended up. And yeah. how was that? And was that kind of you were like, this is what I want to do and I want to pursue this further then? Yeah, yeah. I I was just fascinated by it. So, you know, in first year in science, um, when I was well, way back in the Triassic, when I did first year in science, um, you had to do biology chemistry, physics, and maths. Typically, you, did, you could you could pick a flavor of the basic science. You did all of those for the full um, two semesters for first year. And so you would have you know, a really deep understanding of all the major attributes and the major fields in science. So I did that, but, the, but biology was what really interested me. I really loved physics as well, but biology really interested me. And it was particularly the animals. And I remember having some amazing lecturers. So... Um, Professor Tom Hayden was one of one was a lecturer that just kind of blew my mind listening to these really unusual concepts that you were introduced to. Now, if you, sp- you you spend your time reading about spiders and bats and whales and dolphins and a whole the whole world of invertebrates, and it's just fascinating. And it's fascinating how they evolved and how could you understand them and what's their role in the ecosystem, what's our role among the animal kingdom. And so no, I really like zoology. And again, you know, as you move up from first year, second year, third year, fourth year, you become more specialized in the questions that you're asking. And it's a very broad approach because you learn environmental biology, 
the one thing that was very unique in UCD at the time was that um, the professor of zoology was essentially a geneticist. And typically in many um, degree programs, zoology was considered more environmental and more taxonomic. But we had a really deep understanding of genetics as well. And that was part of the course. Zoology in UCD is highly integrative. So you learn environmental biology, molecular biology, you learn the diversity of all of life, um, field biology, lab biology, and so forth. And it's really by having an understanding of all these different aspects, can you integrate them together to answer grand questions? So I, I loved it. And I, my, my fourth year project was looking at the mating behavior of fallow deer in the Phoenix Park. And that was a real introduction into the slog of collecting data. I always thought, oh, I want to be a field biologist out in Africa, looking at lions and giraffes. And then I realized to be a field biologist, you're up at five o'clock in the morning, getting the bus, driving out to the Phoenix Park and standing there in the cold and the rain until it got dark, which was seven or eight at night, recording these deer. You couldn't go to Fesher's Week. You couldn't go to the science ball. You had to do that. And you did it seven days a week for six weeks. And it just, and I made you realize, you get a sense of how, what type of commitment does it take to be able to do real science? But no, I loved it. That must have been such a good experience even to do the the field research as part of your degree, because that kind of probably gave you an insight into what it would be like to be a zoologist, I suppose. Well, the thing was, it was, so I, I did, so for any of our projects, you can do a more molecular-based project, a more field-based project. So it was pure field biology I did, looking at this made choice behavior. But then I realized it was, so you learn how to do it, you learn what's like. And then I did, went to Edinburgh and I did a master's in animal behavior and animal welfare. And again, I went to study the captive behavior of swift fox in Canada. And I realized that science allowed you to move around. But what I, what I felt that was lacking from just the pure field behavioral studies was an understanding of the mechanisms. And I realized that the questions that I wanted to ask, and I was interested in mate choice behavior and how these simple, I suppose, a choice of who an individual would mate with, how would that drive and change adaptations in species throughout time? So again, it was evolution I was actually quite interested in. So it was inheritance and it was evolution. And I thought that to really get it to the crux of the part of zoology that fascinated me, I need to, to get better at genetics. And so then I was able to, I applied to do a PhD. So it was a project that had, there was funding in the project. Originally I wanted to study made choice behavior, domestic cats, feral domestic cats, and took a year out and wrote a proposal and so forth and didn't quite convince anybody that I should, that they would want to fund this project. But in the meantime, I met a whole bunch of other researchers. So anybody out there who's looking to do a PhD, go contact the researchers and say, hey, I want to do this and I'd like to work in your lab. They may say, well, that's interesting, but actually here's a much better question and I have funding for it. And so something like this happened. I applied to do um, a PhD up in Queens with Michael Stanhope at the time. And this was to try and use genes to be able to sequence them and make an evolutionary tree of bats and other mammals. And it was at the time in the late 1990s when it was becoming possible now through this advancement of molecular technologies to sequence genes from things that weren't humans or mites or flies, essentially. And this meant that we could now have very different data sets to be able to reconstruct evolutionary trees, which were the genes. And they were giving us a very different understanding of the evolutionary history of mammals, for example, of where we went. And there was a big question about how did bats evolve? How did flight evolve? How did echolocation evolve? And so I was lucky enough, applied for this project that was available and, and got selected. And I went up to Queens and I, I was really thinking, oh, my God, am I going to be able to do this to be in the, just to be in the lab and not to be in the field? You know, 
will I, this is going to really upset me. And I remember trying to learn the techniques is a very different approach, but I had a very, an understanding of the behavior and the, the ecology because that was what I was interested in. But within six weeks starting the project, I was hooked on bats because you really read about their unique adaptations and how really understanding the adaptations they've evolved could help us, I suppose, understand you know, what is the genetic basis of flight? What is the genetic basis of the unique attributes that bats have, such as they have this extended longevity? They're able to have all of these viruses, but yet not necessarily get sick from these viruses. How do they evolve the ability to echolocate? Why do some of them echolocate and some don't? They were just a fantastic order of mammals, the second largest order of mammals that really we wanted to, to try and understand the unique adaptations that mammals have evolved and what's the molecular base of these. This was kind of an evolutionary biologist, you know, this was your dream world. So bats are just so fascinating to study because they have all of these attributes, not just one of them. And I suppose because I'm I'm dying to get into the kind of nitty gritty of your research and of bats, because as I was saying to you in the last week, I've been looking up a lot of your talks and stuff. And I don't think I had realized how fascinating this this subject is. But before that, I just want to ask, because it seems like once you, I suppose, did your fourth year project, you were you were kind of dead set on academia. You wanted to pursue this. You wanted to become a scientist. But was there other people who were encouraging you or is there anyone you look back on and say, you know, they really spurred me on um, as a mentor? It's a really good question. And it's not quite right because or maybe I misled you a bit. So I did did zoology, did my did the field biology. That was great. I then did my master's and really liked it. But I took a year out because I was worried. Am I going to actually have a career in this? How can, you know, would I not be better off getting a real job? And maybe I, I explored the idea of should I do now a master's in law or should I go back and do uh, an MBA and my family always thought well you're lost in science you really should do an MBA <laughs> and so what used to happen was I would get all of a sudden these prospectus from Harvard Business School or from Penn would arrive in in my name talking about the MBA because my parents were convinced you know she's lost she doesn't know quite what she's doing so they were saying well maybe you should explore something else because if you are going to actually succeed in this field it's like the Olympics to, to succeed in science, you've got to be the best because it's very hard to get a job. It's very hard to publish the papers. It takes that level of commitment. And if you want to really pursue a job in academia in some of the best schools, or if you want to be able to get the funding, you've you got to keep that going. So it's, you become a science athlete, really. And you become an elite athlete is the way I see it. It's the way how I have it like. And so it was difficult. So I wasn't quite sure that actually I could do it. And so that year out that I took between my master's and my PhD, I thought, right, I'm going to try and think, let's try and explore the ideas. Is this really what I want to do? And I said, right, I'll apply, think about doing law. And I had taken some classes in law and animal ethics. Taking that year out, all I could do was write proposals for a PhD I wanted to do. And, and that was the part that, this was the part that even though I, and I went, I spent three months traveling around Africa at that time. And all I could think about was the scientific questions I could answer. And so then I realized, you know, something actually it's for me. So I did take some time and I, I, I do recommend people do that because it, it, this is, this is a, they say it's no job for young people. It's, you have to have that level of commitment to succeed in science. It's as simple as that. But it's it just, you get such a kick out of it. You know yourself. You know, it's three yeah. o'clock in the morning. Typically, you have been slaving at this for three years. It's all gone wrong for the first, you know, 2.9 of those three <laughs> years. And all of a sudden you've got your data and you know something that nobody else in the whole world does because your data answers that question. I mean, that's it. 
Like that's kind of, I suppose, maybe we're all junkies. <laughs> you know, you're kind of, you're, you're, you're fact-based junkies as a scientist. It's what you want to do and it makes you feel alive. It's like being an artist, I guess. I think when it's in your bones, you can't stop it. And I still always worry. And I kind of look at my brothers and their success and sometimes think, Jesus, I should have been a whiskey baroness. <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> but I guess it's, it's what you have to do. And, you know, when I see my PhD students succeed or when I see our papers published and you think, well, you know, I achieved this. These are my ideas. I'm in it because I'm interested in the answers. And if you're interested in finding the answers, when you find them, when you actually answer the question, it's, there's nothing better in the world. Well, I suppose, you know, that's this kind of a good point then, our conversation to bring in the field. And one of my questions I was going to ask you is why bats? And you kind of answered that a little bit earlier on. But I suppose just talk to you about why should we should study bats. You know, why are they yeah. interesting and what impact studying them might have on furthering the understanding of human biology? So, well, bats are the most fascinating of all of the orders of mammals. So one in five of every living mammal today in this planet is actually a bat. So there's lots of them. And they're found all over the whole world, apart from those extreme polar regions. Their success, so their evolutionary success, probably is as a result of being able to fly. So they're the only mammals that have achieved the ability of true self-powered flight. Now that's extraordinary because swimming has evolved convergently. You've got the sea cows, you've got the whales and different subordinate groups. But flight's only origin once, true flight. So you have things that fall with style which are your flying lemurs or your squirrels or your sugar gliders, those marsupials, but the bats actually fly. So flight is very metabolically costly. And what does the genome, what is the genes, how did it change from being a, a mammal that essentially crawled on the ground, crawled up trees? How did, how did flight actually evolve? And so to me, that is, is a very fascinating question. The other thing, why should you study bats, is that the other thing that bats do and you know this by seeing them in the wild. So what happened was a lot of field biologists would go out and you would catch a bat, catch a bat as a baby, because you'd see that their finger bones aren't yet fused. Put a little ring on it or put a transponder, a little, a little microchip on it. And they were studying these populations and they'd study them and they would be catching them year after year after year after year. And bats are very small. These are the small little bats weighing, say, a third of a lab mouse. And what they found was that they could would keep catching the same individual year after year after year after year after year. And I think how long your mouse lives for. Even if you ever raised a hamster or a mouse in captivity yourself, you know your heart's broken <laughs> by two years, three years or four years because four years is pretty good going. So typically in nature, there's a law of small things. They have a high metabolic rate. They live fast and they die young. Big things live slow, live long. Think of a bowhead whale. Think of some of those big, huge Greenland sharks. But that's what to be expected. But bats are extraordinary because they're the smallest of all mammals are bats. They have the highest metabolic rate of all mammals, producing loads and loads of damaging uh, free radicals. But yet they don't experience this type of deleterious, accelerated aging you would expect. So bats have evolved mechanisms to slow down aging. And so what they've found is a bat that they caught, they ringed as an adult, this is in Siberia. My eldest Branty released this bat. This bat has now been caught 43 years later with no signs of aging. And if you're correct for um, body size, it's equivalent to about 258, 270 human years. Gosh. So if we were to live in, so if a bat was to live in human years, that's how long they would be lived for with that age. But it's not just one species. It's many, many, many. 
And the majority of bats live way longer than expected given their body size. And these are wild bats. They don't have any. There's no, there's no medicine. There's no antibiotics. You know, if they got a really bad, cold, wet spring, they're going to have to try and have enough weight to survive. Their habitats are being encroached hugely. The things they're feeding on, it's been decimated. They feed them, most of the temperate bats in Europe, they feed on insects. And we're losing them at such a huge rate because of the use of insecticides. So, but yet they're still living for a long time. So they've evolved mechanisms to deal with the stress of living. They've evolved mechanisms to slow down aging and they don't get cancer at the rate they should. And that's the other thing. This is what always fascinated me when I was learning about their biology. So they did for a long time. They've evolved mechanisms to slow down aging. The other thing, again, that really, really blew my mind with bass is when I did my postdoc in the NIH and I was working in the laboratory of genomic diversity in the National Cancer Lab. And we were kind of looking at different species and trying to understand, do they have a unique immune system to allow them to tolerate and live with different types of viruses? So bats also seem to be able to tolerate and live with many different viruses that typically would kill us. Mm. So bats seem to be able to tolerate the likes of a Marburg virus. It's been argued that they can tolerate Ebola virus. And bats are the highest diversity that we know of, of coronaviruses. And so again, they seem to be able to live with many, many different types of coronaviruses. You can have the beta coronaviruses, the SARS-like coronaviruses. So potentially they've evolved mechanisms to be able to live with them. So they have the high diversity of lives of viruses, which is the rabies. So potentially they have a unique immune system that allows them tolerate and live with viruses, a different way of responding so that rather than get this self-inflicted horrendous autoimmune response that your immune system goes into hyperdrive to get rid of the virus, which ends up killing you, bats have mitigated that measure so they can do that as well. They're also really important for our ecosystems. And so they are keystone predators. Now, this means that they are going in, feeding on a whole bunch of different insects, insects that maybe would feed on crops. And so it's an estimated that just one species of bat in the United States, that they save the US taxpayer up to $3 billion in insecticide and knock-on effect by feeding on pests, for example. They also are able to mitigate our trophic system. So they, they would feed on different prey that would feed on other prey. So our ecosystems function when you have those keystone predators present. In the tropics, they alter major sea dispersers because they would be feeding on the fruit and flying around all of those South Pacific islands. And they go and I suppose distribute the fruit. They pollinate tequila plants, for example. Any type of nocturnal flowering plant will be pollinated by a bat because you don't have nocturnal birds pollinating these plants and the insects aren't coming out at that time unless you've got the moths. So they're, they're really, really important for many, many different reasons. Also, they have this really unique type of sensory perception. And so the majority of bats use echolocation. So they can actually orient in complete darkness using sound alone. And then you have a other family of bats that have these big, large fruit bats that have lost their ability to echolocate, according to my theories, and that you can see this trade-off in the senses. And so, again, the idea is, say we want to understand diseases of the senses, such as inherited blindness, inherited deafness. One way to do this is by looking at how genes have evolved and change, changed in animals that see well and animals that don't see so well. By aligning up, it's called this conservation, looking at the conservation index, by finding key genes that are required for vision by looking at how those genes have changed in multiple different animals, such as elephants and horses and cows and so forth and bats. And you can see whether or not the mutation that maybe you have 
and you're blind, whether or not this falls in a region of evolutionary conservation. If it does, it means chances are that's the mutation that's making you sick. Because if all of mammals have an A at that site and you have a G and you're blind and these ones aren't blind, chances are that's the one that makes you very, very sick. But bats, you can use them as a model to understand how does sensory biology change? Can it give us some personal insights into our understanding of inherited disease of the senses? Um, they use this methodology, by the way, if you ever go for a BRCA1 breast screening genetic test. Mm-hmm. Say you have some mutations that are different and unique to you. They use this evolution conservation to work out whether or not that maybe it could drive your chances of a higher chance of getting breast cancer. So again, that's using evolution. But with the bats, you can study how does sensory perception change and what does it mean? And we've been doing that, looking at how they smell, how they evolve, just purely zoology questions. So to sum it all up, they're involved because they have evolved mechanisms to fly. They have had to adapt multiple different biological pathways to allow them somehow resist aging. And I think it's correlated with flight. They've had to evolve these mechanisms. They also can live with all these viruses. So studying bats can allow us to understand what we have to do to tolerate viruses. They're really important for our ecosystems. Without them, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. They're like bees. You need them. And they're also important for trying to understand the evolution sense of perception, which is right at the front line of how evolution functions and how we change and how we adapt and how we survive and how our babies survive in an environment. Because without sense of perception, you can't escape a predator and you can't find food. So they're important for all those reasons. Yeah. And like, you know, as you're talking there, I've like so many questions that I want to touch on. But I suppose firstly, I know you're interested in kind of sequencing the genome and mapping the genome of these bats. So maybe talk to me a little bit about how you go about doing these experiments, how you sample these bats, and then maybe some of the key findings that that you've found, particularly what I'm interested in the inflammatory side of it, and then also the aging side, which I think is is a really cool aspect of it too. Well, I suppose, I mean, I've been doing this for quite a while now, but I'll tell you part about this. So I was lucky enough, I got a European Research Council grant. And again, this is given for a high risk, high gain project to try and study the aging process in bats. And this was something that was quite a risky thing because it had never been done before. And the other difficulty is think how you would normally do an aging study. So an aging study, if you want to try and understand what are the molecular mechanisms that bats have evolved to allow them to slow down the aging process, you need to be able to sample bats as they age. So typically in the lab, you would do a project on a short-lived model organism because you could see them from their birth to their death within your own lifetime or the lifetime of your PhD. And so what they would do is you would sample this organism, this individual as a baby and as they age. But the problem with bats was to try and do this. You can't keep the long-lived bats in captivity. They just don't do well. I wanted to study, understand what bats doing to slow down the aging process. And I was intrigued with the idea of potentially it's their immune response, their ability to tolerate all these viruses, the ability to not get cancer and not age. If this was correlated, this was together. But to be able to test the hypothesis, you need to have the data. And so um, wrote an ERC grant. It was a PhD student who was in a postdoc at my lab, Sebastian Fuchsman, who had access to these population of these long-lived bats, these myotis myotis bats that had been studied by Brittany Vivant, this grassroots organization in Brittany in France. And what they had done was they had actually caught these bats as babies, put on little microchips. They'd been studying their ecology and their behavior for essentially 20 years. They'd caught them and marked them in 2010, which meant that when my grant started in 2013, I'd be able to know how old they were. 
because the only way you can age it bad is you catch it bad as a baby, put it in a transponder. And so say, say I caught, a, caught a bat as a baby in 2010, you recatch the bat in 2020, you know that individual is 10 years age. But if you catch the bat as an adult in 2010, and you catch that bat again in 2020, you know that adult is, t- that adult is 10 plus. They could be 40, mm. but you know they're older than 10 years. So we were able to find this population of bats that were tagged, that we were going to be able to recapture the same individual year after year after year because the females come back to these beautiful old Gothic churches that are their roosts to have their babies, like salmon, same place every year. And working with this fantastic grassroots conservation organization, pretending we want us and a whole bunch of volunteers, the local villagers and so forth, would go and we'd put up these traps at the exits from when the, the mothers and their babies who could now fly all leave the church and we'd catch them all. And what we do is we'd catch the same individual year after year. We'd weigh them, we'd measure them, we'd look at their health. And we had to develop the lab techniques to be able to go and look at biological aging markers. These techniques were originally designed to use in humans or mice, and we had to adapt them to be able to work in bats. And so we, we take a little bit of blood from their ankle veins, less than 140 microliters, which is essentially two or three drops. You can't bleed them dead. You can't be a, a vampire on your bat. <laughs> we take a wing punch, and it's this little tiny three millimeter piece of wing. We flash freeze these in the field with liquid nitrogen, and we bring them back to my lab in UCD. And what we, we want to we say, well, let's go look at a whole bunch of the aging markers and let's see what happens in bats as they age. Could we uncover things that they have evolved or that happen differently in bats that maybe underlies their extended health span? And I had a crack team of the most brilliant, brilliant uh, PT students who joined me at the time. And we all led this crazy expedition, which let me tell you, was very difficult to start. It's easy now, but it was, it was a baptism of fire. You know, we're into our 10th year this year. We were able to manage to sample this year as well. Long story. But <laughs> what, what we did was we decided to look at, at biological markers of aging. And Nicole Foley led the charge looking at telomeres. So again, remember, telomeres are the protective caps at the ends of your chromosomes that shorten as you age. And what will happen is, so anybody who has a disease where they can't maintain the length of telomeres, they age prematurely. And what will happen is they cause the cells to stop replicating when the telomeres get so short. And really, you're supposed to remove them. The cell is supposed to self-destruct. But something, things go wrong. And this old cell that won't reproduce anymore, won't, won't, can't divide anymore, sits there and starts to emit these signals. And this causes the other, so it becomes a zombie cell. And it causes all the other cells to, this can accelerate aging. And so the idea was, well, in bats, do they have an ability to, to extend their telomeres? Which biologically they shouldn't do, because if you remember, you can't extend at the five prime end of your chromosome, or do they have the ability to somehow find a way or, or, you know, or do they have really long telomeres? So it doesn't matter. And so what we found when we did this, it was extraordinary because we developed methods that you could do this in a non-lethal way. We weren't killing the bats. We needed them to live. That meant that other people who had done these long-term micro capture projects from different species of bats all around the world said, hey, we can send you samples, send us wing punches. So we looked at how did the telomeres shorten in long, long-lived bats? And what we found in the longest lived genera bats, the myotis bats, the telomeres did not shorten with age. This was extraordinary. So we looked at young ones, middle-aged ones and older ones, and we found they didn't shorten with age because in everything else, pretty much they shorten with age. In us and badgers and seals and so forth. Some of the bird biologists, hey, yeah, no, no. In birds, they don't shorten with age. So that's another question. <laughs> but so we found, so, so bats seem to be able to maintain the length of their telomeres as they age. 
We also want to work out, well, all right, what was going on with their mitochondria, for example, because they're such a high metabolic rate. Did you expect to see that you would have a whole lot of this oxidative damage in their mitochondria as a rate? So again, we designed the assay to sequence whole mitochondria. Was there evidence of damage? And we found that despite their high metabolic rate and high production of these free radicals, they didn't experience the same level of damage as would be expected. So again, they maybe had evolved ways to mitigate the damage, either fix it or remove it. We looked at their microbiome, looking at, do you find they have this weird level of change in the, the, the bacteria in their guts? And we found that, again, it looked like there was lots of states that didn't change with age. So again, they're doing something to, to not have this effect of aging. It's some very weird pathogenic bacteria, and then we won't talk about those. And <laughs> um, we also then, and this was the, the really interesting part. So we, we then looked at, right, these are all looking at markers on their own. We then had design, and this was the part that I thought was, was a really cool finding. What we do is we take up to 140 microliters of blood, a couple of drops, and Huang Zizha, or Zizha Huang, as he calls himself now, he was again, PhD student down post at my lab, had designed these assays that we could sequence the entire blood transcriptome from bats with the sample. And we wanted to see what, what, what happened in bats as they age. Should they show the same experience of dysregulation that you see in humans as they age? And as we age, you know, our good genes that protect us stop being so much expressed, the bad genes get expressed at a higher level. We were able to compare our bats with humans and mice. And what we found was extraordinary. So we found in bats, what happens as they age is their ability to increase the expression of their genes that repair their DNA, it increases. In humans and mice, it decreases. We found that they seem to be able to match their inflammatory markers with their anti-inflammatory markers. So again, as we age, we become more inflamed. With bats, they seem to be able to balance the two things. So again, it's maintaining this homeostasis. We found that it looked like their, their ability to remove cellular damage through autophagy it looked like they were also increased with age. What we found was that using our methods, what you could actually find is that known life extension mechanisms. So if you want to make a lab mouse live longer, you make it overexpressed P10. That's naturally increased the expression of P10 as they age. We decrease. Again, they decrease the expression of the NYC gene. We increase it. So our methods allowed us to uncover known life extension mechanisms, but then we found potential new ones. And then again, we found genes that showed a very different expression pattern with age in bats versus humans and mice. So these are our candidates going forward. But we also looked at the microRNAs. And again, so what regulates this? So we spent six years looking at protein coding genes, six years realizing that the genomes were no good for other mammals or were indeed no good for bats. And we found that actually, when you look at the protein coding genes, you don't see that much signature of selection. Now, isn't that surprising? And it shouldn't have been that surprising because these are the genes that are required to pretty much stay conserved. But with the difference in bats is its regulation. So we've got the same genes. It's just when you switch them on and when you switch them off plays a huge role in, our, I suppose, our downstream physiology. So these were the main findings we found that there was regulation was important. But if you really want to understand regulation, you're going to have to have an exquisite genome. So coding genes are easy to work with now because... You can amplify them, you can sequence them. They don't change that much, but that's not going to give you the insight in how things. So you need to look at enhancers, promoters, and what regulates that. And so what we found during, during doing this was that I originally thought that I'd be able to look at the change that happened just in one species of bat as they age without a decent genome. 
And you got to remember, it cost hundreds of thousands to sequence genomes when this project was started. And I was working with a group of scientists. It was Genome 10K. So the idea was a group of people got together in 2009. And we all came together and the idea was, should we argue that we should sequence the genome of, say, 10,000 vertebrates? This is where we came to. How would you do it? Could you do it? And sequencing costs had come down. And we advocated that this was very important. And this was Genome 10K. And we kept on saying, how do you do it? And this, it was a group of people kept coming together saying, is it a good idea? Good idea. But there was you know, a global economic crisis. The ability to sequence genomes, the price didn't drop as quickly as we thought we could. We thought Illumina was going to save the day so you could sequence genomes with these small pieces. So you could use DNA stored in museums for years that was quite uh, degraded that we'd be able to put them all together. But we realized you couldn't make genomes the way you wanted to with this sample. You need lots more DNA. But really it was, I suppose it was about 2016 and so forth when things started to really change. And so again, mm. people begin to realize that we need to be able to sequence genomes in much, much larger pieces. Think of a jigsaw puzzle. Much easier to put together when they're big pieces rather than small pieces. And all of a sudden, it started to become that it was economically po possible to sequence the genome of all of life and that we actually would be able to build them and put the data together. And even from samples that weren't as perfect as we needed. And this led us to come up with the idea of BAT1K. Now it became possible. You could see what's happening with the birds. Mm. And so myself and Sonia Vernes, who's the other co-founder of BAT1K, started having meetings every month saying, can we do it? What should we do? And we put the consortium together. Gene Myers, Michael Hiller, Liliana Davalos, they all joined us. We got funding from the Max Planck through the director, who was Gene Myers. And so in the meantime, when we're doing all the aging studies, we started to say, right, let's develop the techniques to be able to sequence the genomes. Let's build a consortium of people who believe in this. So we have about 500 members, a thousand followers on Twitter, people who've already dedicated. I can go find that sample. I can collect high molecular weight DNA. I want to work with you. Could we find a way to have the pipeline collecting the samples, sending the samples to a sequencing center, sequence the samples, assembling the samples? So we, we, we did, and we put this together. We put this pilot project together, which is a six-bat genome that just got published in Nature on the front cover in July. Yeah. And this really was first ever, essentially, chromosome-level genome assemblies of bats. This allowed us to see things we've never seen before. And we could now suddenly look at the regions of the genome that can regulate their cool adaptations. We could try and make much better phylogenetic trees to address where do bats fall in the tree of life, which is really tricky because it's a phylogenetic difficult question. We used new methods to do that. We had new data sets. So we answered that question. So bats are in a group called Eurasiatheria. They're called sister taxa to scrotifera. <laughs> Basically, you have true shrews, then you have bats, and then you have a group that contains horses, cows, pangolins, and whales and dolphins. So that's where they mm. fall in the tree of life. They're not closely related to rats at all. Rats are more closely related to us than they are to bats. And um, we were able to look at genes that were involved in echolocation, genes that would have evolved and changed in the ancestor of bat that led to flight. But what particularly we found and was particularly pertinent to, to this pandemic we're facing right now was when we looked in the bat genome, again, we were interested in uncovering some of trying to see a shotgun sequence. So just basically a broad, no direction. What's the difference between bats versus everything else? And their immune genes really hopped out. And what you found when you looked at expansion of certain gene families and contraction of others. And so what it looked like in bats is what you can see is that they have expansion of, for example, these antiviral genes, these apobec genes. They have selection on genes that are involved in somehow dampening an inflammatory response. Some of the work that we then did with Luke O'Neill 
where we were able to isolate bat macrophages and stimulate them with immune agonists. And what it looked like, and this was again some of the hypothesis coming out, their antiviral genes are always switched on. And what you'll find is that they have this really, really this constant high antiviral gene switched on. But they seem to be able to match this with an equally aggressive anti-inflammatory response. And so when you look at how a stimulated infection happens and you look at the genes, the cytokines expressed by bat macrophages versus mice macrophages, what you'll see is very, very quick pro-inflammatory cytokines happening very quickly. Mm. Later on, you look at, again, the, the cytokines that are expressed, and what you'll see is that the ratio of inflammatory to anti-inflammatory cytokines is that the anti-inflammatory cytokines are much higher. And this doesn't happen in mice. So they don't seem to find a way to be able to throttle their inflammatory response. So it looks like in bats, they've evolved genomes that allow this to happen. So they have their constant antiviral inflammatory responses switched on. Mm-hmm. But they're able to do this because they match this with an equally aggressive anti-inflammatory response. So it's like the Goldilocks response. They seem to have just enough aggressive inflammatory response to neutralize whatever's happening. And then they dampen this with an equally aggressive anti-inflammatory response. And I believe that studying how these disease, how, how the disease response changes in bats over the course of an infection will allow us to find better treatments. And only by having these really exquisite genomes can we now go in and say, all right, if we tweak this or do this, and how is it controlled? So again, is it the microRNAs that are driving this? And so we were able to validate a lot of this stuff. So I've been talking a lot. No, I, I was going to ask, you know, it's kind of interesting because I think bats have gotten a bad rap recently with coronavirus. So it's a kind of interesting take and, and it's, you know, that we could maybe maybe by studying bats and how they have these coronaviruses, but don't seem yeah. to be affected by it, how studying that can actually benefit human health. Yeah. Because I think, and I watched a talk where you said that bats, even before coronavirus, have been kind of demonized a little bit in, in Western culture. And I think particularly in 2020, I think they've kind of become this, they've brought this terrible virus onto, onto humanity. But now with your work, maybe studying it, we could un- unlock genes or unlock mechanisms that we could tap into in human um, health. I mean, it's to me, this is is essentially a no-brainer. Solutions are there. Nature, she's already evolved our solutions. You just need to look in the right place. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. The wheel's already invented. So the idea is that studying bats can allow us understand how we can tolerate, and not just coronaviruses. If you study their immune response, if you study the ability of them to dampen inflammation, so that's seems to be the key. They're able to dampen, they're able to control inflammatory responses. Potentially is also linked to their aging. So the signature and the hallmark of aging, aging is a heightened inflammation. Mm. And think of all of the diseases that you have that are inflammatory disease. But if bats have evolved mechanisms to control their immune response, to be able to allow them not suffer inflammaging, as they call it, it's not just treatments of diseases not just treatments of external disease that you catch, pathogens. It's also your own internal constant stimulation that we experience through aging. So studying bats can give us lots and lots and lots of different ways of fighting these great problems that we have. But the touch of the whole demonization, the part that I, I find a bit difficult to deal with by this constant obsession with bats being the basis of coronavirus, and I think that maybe is because they were trying to say, well, okay, did it come out of that Wuhan lab or not? Think of other viruses. Think of HIV. Where'd that come from? That came from primates. Where does the flu come from? That comes from pigs. That comes from birds. These are just zoonotic events. So the reality is that humans have to realize that we share this planet with many other different species. 
and all of the species, viruses, remember, they co-adapt to exist in the host. They don't want to kill us. Mm. Viruses want you to live to allow you have more hosts for them to be able to replicate. That's what the virus does. All it does is it hijacks your cells, your, your, your DNA replication machinery, your own air, and to make more copies of itself. Can't make a copy of itself on its own. It needs a host. So it's in a virus best uh, evolutionary scenario to evolve quickly to allow it not kill the host, for the host to live long enough to get passed on to another host. So the more species that you, you have within an order, Mm. the more virus you're going to have. So, of course, there are more viruses than bats. There's more bats than there are primates. Of course, mice have the most amount of viruses because they're co-adapted to exist with each different species of mice. So I'm not surprised that bats have lots of viruses. There's been an argument that potentially their immune response makes them make more zoonotic virus. A zoonotic virus is a virus that has a higher likelihood of hopping between the species barrier. Coronaviruses are perfect zoonotic viruses. They're very, um, I suppose, promiscuous. And they're able to recombine with themselves all the time. So it's argued that because bats have that antiviral response switch on the whole time, that this means that the viruses have to adapt maybe more quickly in bats to be able to overcome the bat's immune response. So maybe that will drive a much higher selective pressure of the bat virus to change, what makes it more likely to be able to hop between species. But all viruses really can hop between species eventually. They're evolving and changing. They have really, really bad ability to repair their DNA or their RNA. That's mm-hmm. what a virus does. The coronaviruses are just great at doing that. We knew this was coming. Yeah, we had SARS-CoV-1. People need to stop doing what they were doing. There shouldn't have been those wet markets. They'd already shown that the virus had gotten potentially from a horseshoe bat into a civic cat. But right now with SARS-CoV-2, how it got from bats into humans is still unknown. And so you got to think about what we know about this. So when you actually look at circulating viruses in bat populations, um, which is the rat TG13, it's the most closely related to coronavirus in terms of genome sequences to SARS-CoV-2. And that's found in a bat. And then you look at SARS-CoV-2. And when you do a phylogenetic time tree on this, looking at the mutation rates between the two, it looks like there's 40 to 70 years of missing data between this virus circulating in bat populations and then getting into the human populations. Now that can be sped up. That means you presume a mutation rate. That can be sped up mm. um, if it's been brought into something like some domestic animal or if it was in a lab being passed through lots of pastures, you could speed up the mutation rate. So the question is what happened? Where did it come from? And the other thing that people need to think about, horseshoe bats hibernate in the winter. Why would they have been around then? So where so I still think there's loads of missing parts of this puzzle. Yeah. And yes, it looks like the closest virus that we can find in wildlife is a bat virus. But I'm reckoning we're missing other parts. So what we really need to do is sample all the wildlife in that area. And again, a lot of the, the these big projects, such as the Predict Project, want to do that. Go in and sample mm. lots and lots of different wildlife, different populations, different domestic animals to try and see where did it come from? Did it live within humans for long? We didn't know. So again, we've got lots of questions to answer. And how does it hop across? And we need to answer them soon. Yeah. Coronaviruses are, you know, sweet, lovely, nice viruses compared to the other things that are out there. Oh, God. And yeah. And you read the virologists, they will always predict horrible, horrible epidemics are coming. But we need to find ways to, first of all, stop that this clash between humans and the species that yeah. are naturally carrying all these viruses and find ways to protect ourselves, find ways to protect our wildlife or domestic species, find ways to 
work with nature better to yeah. stop this happening again in any real time frame. You know, the ease of travel just and you know, SARS-CoV-2 really was the least of our worries of the things that can come and see what that's done. It's horribly depressing. <laughs> We're going to have to find a way. So, you know, we can find a treatment by studying the maths because they have evolved these mechanisms. And, and again, you got to remember different viruses kill different species in different ways. Mm. And we need to be not given, looking for a scapegoat. Exactly. Yeah, look to ourselves. Yeah, well, hopefully kind of people listening to this will realise that bats aren't the scapegoat here. But I suppose um, one of my kind of last questions for you, Emma, is more of a global question. And I kind of tend to ask people, if you weren't a scientist, where do you think your life would have ended up? And do you think you would be um, in in the whiskey business or do you think you had a different, there'd be a different um, journey for you? It's a good question. Honestly, I think I would love to have been a a Shakespearean actress. (laughs) <laughs> on the stage actually I, I i would have thought that maybe acting but stage acting would have been something that i would have loved to have done or probably would have gone end up going into some form of business what i was doing i don't know but maybe it would have been maybe it'd been whiskey maybe it'd be something else but i suppose there were the two things but i, I used to think oh, maybe i'd love to be a, a medical doctor mm. but i'm not sure that that would have been I, i'm not sure i would have been that good at that it, but in reality could i really imagine doing anything else probably not <laughs> No, and I think from this chat, I think it really was very obvious that you're so passionate and you love what you do. And as kind of a parting positive note, I'd like to you know, ask you, what is it that drives that passion? And I suppose, what do you love most about what you do? It's curiosity. It's, it's, it's being able to look at the so signs. We try to find patterns to understand why things are. It's this, the curious mind. It's finding the answer to a question that I find fundamentally interesting. And I remember, I suppose, maybe where the emotion comes from, the part that upset me the most was when people started to die from SARS-CoV-2. And I sat there and I still do believe, honestly, the solution to find those treatments do lie in studying bats. Our genomes are going to help hugely in this. And I was kicking myself that I actually wasn't 10 years ahead, that the research I'd started wasn't 10 years ahead. And other people, much more clever than me, were using these. And I hope to God that they do. And I just wish it happened sooner. And so that was the part that, and for me, it's you know trying to see ways. So the problem with being a scientist is you see, I can see a pathway. Mm. I can see how we, where we need to get to. It's very difficult. I do think that understanding how we can turn the clock back, understanding how we can limit the aging process, how we can find ways to treat viruses, lies in studying other mammals close related to us that have evolved these different mechanisms. Using evolutionary tools, using the highest molecular tools to find these answers. It takes time, but I do believe that the answers lie there. I remember years ago saying to someone, the answer to curing cancer lies in the bat genome. I still think it does. And so that's what drives me. But it also torments you. <laughs> if only I had done it sooner. And so hopefully we can all work together and, and, and um, have a, a much better appreciation for things that need to happen and try and find ways. And so find solutions is, is the thing that drives. Yeah, well, I mean, thank you so much again for, for coming on chatting to me today. And, you know, yeah. I've loved hearing about your research and just the kind of enthusiasm and passion that you have for it is, is infectious. I suppose I can ask you a question. What drove you to do your PhD? Um. I suppose so. I, I had like you. I'd I had done biomed. I had done um, biomedical science, and when I got in there, I knew I was really interested in the biology, but human biology. I wa- I knew I wasn't interested in any other kind of animal biology. Um, but in my undergrad degree, a lot of people had people chose it because they wanted to do medicine. 
And I remember yeah. there was a pivotal point where it was, I was in my third year and everyone was going off and doing the HPAT. And I didn't know what a scientist was. I didn't understand what that, yeah. Yeah. what that life was. And I said, I'm going to do the GAMSAT. I said, that's it. I'm going to be a doctor. And I met my old maths grinds teacher on a bus home uh, to Westmead. And he said to me, why would you not just do a research project for the summer? And I said, no, no, I'm going to do a J1. That's my, I'm going to America. Like that's my summer. And he goes, can you not just combine the two? So that weekend I went home and I emailed, I'd say about 30 labs uh, across America. I, I kind of wanted to California and it was really just, I was like, there was no real driver apart from I wanted to go to America and I wanted to have this experience. But he said, maybe we could, you could do the two. And I got um, accepted into a lab in San Diego. I did a three month placement uh, wow. in yeah, stem cell research, regenerative medicine in uh, multiple sclerosis. And then I was I was hooked and off the back of that, I started in the lab with Ursula and I never looked back. So, yeah, it was kind of yeah. a bit of a sequence of events. I think once I got the taste for it, I said, I, I, yeah. I love it. I love it. But yeah, I think yeah, uh, it could have ended up a different way. You know, there's, there's a certain level of alchemy that happens in all this right place, right time. You met yeah. that teacher. This has happened. And, you know, you wrote an email to the boss the lab who said actually you know it's weird I got this funding right now so that's kind of how there's an awful lot of serendipity in life but you know I always think the harder you work the luckier you, you get so you're more lucky the harder you work yeah. but at the same time luck's usually involved in all of this so you know lady luck can smile on you sometimes and it's just fortuitous of, uh, kind of cascade of events that takes us to where we are isn't it yeah it's and it's funny you're the first person who's ever asked me a question so thank you <laughs> oh really yeah yeah, no, I'm interested in that too. But people should hear more about you too. We should do a podcast about you. I don't know. I don't know if I'll, maybe, maybe, maybe like in a few uh, years yeah. time. But um, Emma, listen, thank you so much again. It's a great okay. chat. Yeah, you take care and good luck. And let me know about your research. <laughs> we should work at the same thing. So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences. And if you like this episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.